Welcome to Biodiversity Speaks. I'm Dr. Helena Jolly, a scientist who studies human nature's relationships and interactions in the protected area landscapes, and your host today at Biodiversity Speaks. With me today is Dr. Claire Kremen, Professor at University of British Columbia. Dr. Kremen is President's Excellence Chair in Biodiversity with a joint appointment at Institute for Resources, Environment and Sustainability and Zoology. She is an ecologist and applied conservation biologist working on ways to reconcile agricultural land use with biodiversity conservation. And she is leading a new program here at UBC, Interdisciplinary Biodiversity Solutions. Do check out some of the exciting works going on there. Dr. Kremen has worked in many parts of the world and continue to inspire researchers all over with her passion for biodiversity. I'm thrilled to have this chance to sit down and talk with her about some of the global biodiversity challenges and how her research and work is contributing to biodiversity conservation. Hi, Claire. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for making time to join. Welcome. Hi, Helena. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to be here as well. Thank you, Claire. I am looking forward to our conversation today. Claire, how are you doing? How has 2022 been so far? I'm doing great. And I would say that things are looking up. Maybe we're starting to come out of the COVID cloud. Today's a beautiful day in Vancouver, and that's also good because we've had a run of pretty gray weather. Yeah, Vancouver and rain, right? So whenever I meet a scientist, Claire, I'm very curious to know about their journey. Were you always interested in biodiversity conservation? Tell us something about your childhood and how you became a conservation scientist. Yeah, when I look back, I don't think I was always interested in biodiversity conservation, but I certainly was always interested in animals. And really, it started with a gigantic collection of stuffed animals. I had so many when I was a kid. And also a fascination with zoos. Most summers, my parents, who loved the arts, would take us on trips to various European countries. And we would go to museum after museum and monument after monument and church after church. But I was always asking, can we please go to the zoo? And I think I went to many zoos in all over Europe. So that was really the beginning for me. And then when I took biology in school, it really resonated with me. And I, I knew from a pretty young age, I guess from about eighth grade, that I wanted to go into biology. But my path definitely wandered quite a bit. During high school, I became exposed to more social justice issues, particularly around food. And I felt that I really wanted to do something that would help with the food crisis. You know, could we help people that didn't have enough access to food to get food? And the father of a high school friend was working in this sphere in development. And he said, that's great, but you really should go get a fundamental biology degree. That's what you should do. And I followed his advice, which led me really down more the pathway academically of ecology and evolutionary biology. And so I did my undergraduate research and also graduate research in that sphere. But towards the end of it, I was really asking myself, did I go too far from my roots? And where do I want to come back to? And around this time, which was quite a long time ago, I should say, there were some great articles coming out about deforestation around the world. And it piqued my interest. And it was really towards the end of graduate school that 
I became interested in biodiversity conservation as opposed to the question that originally drove me, which is more this food security question. And my journey to become a conservation biologist really started at the end of graduate school. Kind of boldly, I proposed to teach a class in conservation biology, which I didn't know anything about. And also, just starting to become a field at that time. It was 1987, and it was the year that the very first meeting of the Society for Conservation Biology happened. And it was also the year that one of the first major texts on conservation biology was published, which was the text that we ended up using in my tiny class that I had. In that class, I certainly learned a lot, staying maybe just a half step ahead of my students. And through the class, I met a graduate student who was working in Madagascar. And that ended up being really pivotal for me because through him, I met his advisor. And ultimately, that's what got me to Madagascar. Wow. It is really fascinating, Claire, from stuffed toys, zoo, (laughs) and to Madagascar. I know. It's a bit of a strange journey. It's really interesting. I'll keep that story in my mind. I have an eight-year-old, and he loves animals. So if stuffed toys lead to a conservation scientist like you, I'm I'm really going to (laughs) encourage him to have more toys and taking him to zoo. (laughs) You mentioned about Madagascar, and now I have so many questions to ask about Madagascar. What got you to Madagascar? How long were you there? Tell us more about your work in Madagascar. How was it like? Sure. Yeah, my pathway to Madagascar was, again, a bit random because in learning about deforestation at that time, which was in the late 1980s, there was so much discussion and focus on the Amazon. And so that's where my sites were. I wanted to go to the Amazon. I wanted to work there and do biodiversity conservation work. So shortly after finishing my PhD degree, I went up to Washington, D.C. to meet with a number of big NGOs and see if they wanted a budding PhD who had lots of passion and and interest, but no experience. And the first question they always asked me was whether I spoke Spanish, which regretfully I, I did not. And so I went back to my university, Duke University, and I went to talk to Pat Wright, who was the person who was advising the student in my class. And I told her my sad story about, you know, really not getting anywhere with these conservation NGOs. And she listened to it all carefully. And then she said, do you speak French? And I said, well, yeah, I do. And she said, well, then why don't you come to Madagascar with me? I will pay for all of your rice and beans as long as you find the money for the plane ticket, which was not the greatest financial deal. The rice and beans probably cost Pat about 50 cents a day, but my plane ticket cost $2,000. But I did find the money for the plane ticket, and I went to Madagascar and worked with her, and that's what got me started there. It was really, as I said, it was very opportunistic. But they say that you know, once you ever go to Madagascar and, and taste the waters of its rivers, you will always want to go back. After that first trip, I just kept returning and worked there for a really long time. I spent about 10 years going back and forth to Madagascar or living in Madagascar for uh, a number of years at a time. And then after that, probably another 10 years, once I kind of got back into the academic world, uh, I couldn't be there as much, but I still continued to support projects over there. So because I was changing so much from my PhD degree to going to conservation biology, I should say that my 
my PhD degree was really in development and evolution. And I was looking at what was behind insect metamorphosis, specifically using a butterfly species as a model. And that was a far cry from doing ecological fieldwork and conservation in Madagascar. So the one thing that I kept constant was the butterfly part. So when I went to Madagascar, I essentially did a lot of inventory work of butterflies in the region where we were working to set up a national park. That ultimately led to much more widespread inventory work that was used in informing where to place protected areas in Madagascar. But I branched out greatly from there after my first work with Pat Wright in the Rana Mafan area, which she was working to set up as a national park, and ultimately we did. I went to another region of Madagascar called Mashwala, and the Mashwala region was the largest remaining lowland rainforest in Madagascar. And so much of the rainforest, the lowland rainforest in Madagascar had already been deforested. So it was considered to be a super important biodiversity conservation priority. But when I went there, there was not yet a park. There were plans. The government was interested in setting up a park, and they had commissioned several organizations to start working on that. And a new organization came in, and that organization, the first thing that they did was to say, who's working on the Mashwala Peninsula? Let's bring them all together and see what they have to say. And I presented what we were doing, and they were very receptive and thought, yeah, this is great information that you're collecting. Would you like to come join our project and help us design the park? And so that is that amazing, was my Jim. dream. I, I was just, I was so lucky. I was basically, you know, sort of there trying to do the work that would be relevant. And then I, I actually got the job to help design the park. And so that got me involved in setting up the whole team for the work. And we reached out to local people and to professionals in Madagascar to build our team. That was pretty much all Malagasy except for a couple of technical advisors like me. And then that professional team went out and identified people from the Mashwala Peninsula to do a lot of the on the ground work. And that's how we conducted the project. Wow. This is super interesting, Claire. So any interesting fact about Madagascar you would like to share with our listeners? Yes, Madagascar is a fascinating place um, because it's a large island that broke off from uh, the continent of Africa. It has a very, very different composition in terms of the animals that live there. And so there are incredible evolutionary radiations of species like the lemurs, which are a group of primates. Their closest relatives would have died out in Africa long ago, but they radiated in Madagascar. Uh, at the same time, there's lots of things that are missing. There's no giraffes, there's no lions, no felids at all, there's no cats, except for domestic cats that have been brought in later. There's also no poisonous snakes, which is a really nice thing. Yeah, that's good to know. I'm, I'm kind of scared of snakes most of the time. So knowing that Madagascar doesn't have snakes, maybe that's my next destination. Well, they have snakes, just not poisonous. They oh. have many beautiful snakes, but they don't have the venomous. super bad venomous ones. Oh, yeah, good. Mm-hmm. So Claire, I've never been to Madagascar and I would love to go there someday. And going back to your journey again from Madagascar to Berkeley and now in Vancouver, from studying butterflies to now working on farmland managements. Your journey as a scientist is beautiful. How did this transition happen? Was it easy and organic or was there a strategic way of you becoming from butterfly specialist to farmland management expert? Yeah, it was a really big transition, but I think it was pretty organic. When I was working in Madagascar, we're focusing on understanding the biodiversity distributions and how we could find a way to best protect them that was going to try to reconcile with human use of the landscapes. We did 
as much work in the sort of human modified landscapes as we did in the natural forest areas. So I was already primed towards thinking about the lands outside of the future park and the lands outside of what we think of as less touched forest. So that part was already there. We also did a lot of work in Madagascar to understand what the forest was providing for people. So sort of the ecosystem services and the benefits that people were receiving from the forest, of which there were many. And so when I came back to the U.S., I was actually based at Stanford. And at Stanford, there was a huge interest in this ecosystem service concept. They were really pushing and promoting the concept. But a, a lot of the work seemed like it was fairly oriented towards economic valuation, and not so much of it was oriented towards understanding how do ecosystem services processes happen on the ground, and specifically, the organisms themselves. It's like pollinators. So being at Stanford and being in a place where so much conversation, discussion was happening about ecosystem services, and yet the sort of huge gap between the ways people were looking at it and actual field work, that was a gap that I was motivated to fill. And being in California, which is such an agricultural state, it seemed like this is something where, yes, I was working on butterflies before, but Butterflies are a pollinator. They're insects. I studied insect ecology. So maybe I can transition that to looking at other kinds of pollinators, which are in terms of crop pollination are mostly bees. And I can start moving into this farming landscape. And my original question when I moved into the farming landscape was really, what is the value of maintaining patches of natural habitat for crop pollination? Does having these natural habitat patches help to promote having crop pollinators in the landscape that provide a valuable service that farmers want. That was my original question. And California was a great place to carry out that kind of work. Yeah, that's super interesting, Claire. So Claire, coming back to the farmlands and your work on farmland management and pollinators, while going through your profile, I read about your work with Center for Diversified Farming Systems and Berkeley Food Institute. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, it was really working in California's agricultural landscapes, which are very, very large fields, very intensive farming, lots of chemical use that really opened my eyes to what our modern farming systems are all about and how impactful they are on biodiversity. And it was through that and also through my work on pollinators where I began to realize some farmers really do things differently. They really bring a lot of diversity into their farm, both through planting many different crops, but also through having non-crop plantings like field borders where they'll, they'll plant a hedgerow of flowering plants, or even in the field, they'll, they'll plant some companion plants to support other beneficial organisms in the environment, like the pollinators. And these were the kinds of farming techniques that we began to study more and to promote with farmers. So what I learned is that it's not just these natural habitat patches in the landscape that are important, and truly they are, but also the things that a farmer can do themselves on their own farm. And that's much more in their farmer's control. And so it's very important that they can do these practices. And what I learned also, not only through my own research, but by looking at the research of others and through teaching about these, is that there's certain techniques that farmers do that diversify their farm. They're not just good for pollinators, but they're good for pest control. They're good for soil management. They're good for really the farmland sustainability. Because they maintain the organisms in the farm, whether it's in the soil or these beneficial insects, the predators of crop pests and the pollinators, that help them to 
produce crops without the use of lots of chemicals. And that really is sort of a fundamental piece of sustainability. Maintaining these systems in in an ecological balance is super important. Mm -hmm. And the Center for Diversified Farming Systems came about through those kinds of interests that I had. And there were a number of people at Berkeley who shared these interests. We started a roundtable on diversified farming systems. And our question really was, what are the benefits of diversified farming systems? What are the costs? What are the barriers to adoption? Because most of us in that group had some sort of understanding that these diversification practices were really beneficial for the sustainability and could be beneficial for other aspects as well for livelihood. So the question was, well, if they're so beneficial, why do things seem to be going in the other direction? Why do we seem to be getting larger, more simplified farms that are less sustainable? And that was the question we set out to answer with the Center for Diversified Farming Systems. Yeah, this is such a entangled and complicated, yet such a wonderful topic. In some of the recent studies, which I was reading some of the papers, Researchers have described how forests and wild areas of earth is rapidly being transformed into farmlands, like the way you were mentioning just now, and how it often pushes the wildlife into steep decline. So I know that you work a lot in the intersection of agroecology, land management, and biodiversity. And one of the key objectives of your work has been trying to reverse this catastrophic biodiversity loss by working with farmers and farmlands to preserve biodiversity. Maybe you can give us a little more details and elaborate some ways in which we can contribute to this reversing of biodiversity decline. Yeah, as you point out, agriculture is in huge conflict typically with biodiversity conservation. That's what we tend to think of, that agriculture is one of the main land uses that has transformed natural habitats and has gotten rid of them. And that is absolutely true. And you know, I join with many other scholars around the world who are calling for a halt to agricultural expansion. We really need to stick within the footprint that we're already occupying in terms of agricultural land use. But what do we do then on the agricultural lands themselves, the lands that have already been converted to farmlands or being used for livestock? We do need to produce food, of course, in these agricultural landscapes. And our demand for food is increasing as population increases and also as tastes for land-demanding foods like meat is increasing as well. So can this more diversified style of agriculture keep up with that? Work that I've been doing and work that we've been synthesizing in large collaborative groups is showing that often these agricultural diversification techniques are actually very good. They're as good or even sometimes better than these more simplified practices. For one thing we really need when we're thinking about agriculture, we need to think about not just how much food it produces and also not just how much biodiversity it supports, but it's a multiple basket of ecosystem services that we need to sustain so that we have a sustainable agricultural production into the future that is also producing a good amount of the food that we need. So I think that really maybe contrary to what's sort of commonly proposed, we can have a very productive agriculture in these lands that is still very supportive of some components of biodiversity. While there are many species that will not persist in agricultural landscape because it has been so modified from a natural landscape, there is another component of species that will persist in such landscapes. And some of them are actually 
as I mentioned before, beneficial to farming. So it's really a question of, can we prevent further expansion of agriculture into what we have as natural, semi-natural landscapes, but also at the same time, improve those agricultural landscapes and make them more hospitable to biodiversity. And that's important because it's a fundamental component of the sustainable production of food. And it's also important because if we have these agricultural landscapes that are surrounding the more semi-natural to natural landscapes and even wilderness areas, then it's better if those are fairly friendly land uses. Like we're not setting up a super harsh contrast between the agricultural lands and these natural lands because organisms need to move. They don't necessarily stay put. They might not stay in that natural habitat patch, but they need to migrate elsewhere, whether they're responding to climate change or it's part of their natural cycle, or it's about maintaining populations that are existing as a network across multiple different patches. They need that movement to exchange genes and to reoccupy patches that may have become temporarily empty. So there's all of these sort of processes and phenomena going on that really require organisms, both plants and animals, to move around landscapes. And if agricultural landscapes are essentially chemical deserts due to the extreme use of pesticides and the extreme landscape simplification that gets rid of any kind of resources that can promote biodiversity, it's Mm. to an animal that needs to move almost as bad or as bad as a concrete parking lot. Mm. So we need to think about agricultural landscapes not as separators, but as connectors. That's interesting. Agricultural landscapes as connecting. And in your conversation, you mentioned a bit about this whole farmlands being a threat to biodiversity and how we can manage that in some way or the other, at least uh, reduce the intensity of that particular damage. So from your experience and observations, Claire, Is this a kind of a global challenge across all the farmlands across the world or are these problems more acute in certain areas of the world? And if so, what do you think are the factors that make it extremely problematic in some areas of the world? I would say it's really both. Yes, you can find these kinds of problems of landscape simplification happening in many different parts of the world. But at the same time, you also will see the opposite trends happening of more diversification and heterogeneity occurring. So we could definitely identify problem areas, but it's also quite globally widespread that this is happening in many different places. And I just want to say also that, you know, of course, in these agricultural regions, we do need to produce food. And we can't ignore the fact that we have already a very large human population that's continuing to grow and that our food demands are also shifting as people essentially move up the economic ladder and their wishes are to have land demanding more luxury products like meat, then that becomes more demanding of sort of agricultural resources in general. So this actually also get me to think this particular thing of like change of preference of food patterns across the world. Is it a very Western thing or like do you see this particular trend of people demanding more increased meat consumption Mm. and things like that throughout the world or... Yes, this is a well-known phenomenon that countries in the global south, there's a growing middle class, they're adopting a Western diet. Um, And unfortunately, the Western diet is a diet that emits a lot of greenhouse gases, requires a lot of energy and land to produce. It's also not very good for people physically. Eating a lot of meat is associated with quite a number of diseases. And then there are other aspects of the Western diet, sort of oversimplified and highly processed foods that are less nutritious and sometimes leading to problems of obesity. So we end up with a sort of a bigger 
global burden of disease from these Western diets. And it's it's really sad, but there's a twin problem of the adoption of Western diets leading to obesity. And then at the same time, the lack of access to food leading to malnutrition. Mm. So we really have those two problems in the food system at the same time. And the sort of highly simplified system of production isn't addressing that very well. So to some degree, having these much more diversified production systems that produce a lot more fruits and vegetables is also part of the equation. This is really good to know, Claire. (laughs) I've never imagined how consumption of certain type of food and biodiversity and our land and conservation, everything is so connected and it's really good to know. I also understand that the rate at which we see decline of wildlife population is huge, especially in relation to when the lands or the wild lands or the forest areas, when it gets converted into farmlands, we see an extensive loss of wild population. Particularly, we have data on loss of mammals, birds, amphibians, reptiles, and fish. But we have very few works on decline of, say, population of insects. And as someone who works at the intersection of farm and biodiversity, and you also work on wild bees and have done some extensive studies on these pollinators. So what are your main concerns for this wildlife population decline, particularly for this insect population? Yeah, I would say we're having this growing information about insect declines as well. And it's really quite frightening because insects are at the base of the food chain of many organisms. And so we don't necessarily have a lot of very detailed species-specific information about insect declines. Again, it's it's quite frightening when we learn, for example, that um, you know one 30-year study looked at just biomass of insects over 30 years in protected areas in Germany and found a 70% decline in biomass. It's frightening because it's such a sort of fundamental property, just like the amount of insect material in general is really declining. And if that's happening, then we know that that's going to be have an important effect on the predators of insects, like quite a number of, of insectivorous birds or other species. We also know that insects are involved in so many different ecosystem functions. And so, again, this really big drop in biomass means that a lot of these organisms that would normally be performing certain functions aren't there to perform those functions. And yeah, we also see big declines of bird biomass in agricultural landscapes, and perhaps those are related. We don't really know, but it could be that the food supply is diminishing as we have less insects in landscapes, and then that transfers up to other parts of the food web. This is super interesting, Claire. I'm really glad you're talking about this. I also think about conservation from a different angle now, discussing about biodiversity conservation from a species level, looking at these simplified farmlands. It's it's fascinating. Because most often when we think of conservation, we have spoken about biodiversity protected areas being one of the most popular and widespread ways of biodiversity conservation. We all know that this is far from perfect. And most of the protected areas have accounted for many ethical failures and damage that it is inflicted on vulnerable communities across the world. These are all well known. Yet recently, there is a strong proposal towards 30 by 30, which is gaining momentum. So for our listeners, 30 by 30 is this plan put forward by global leaders to conserve 30% of Earth's land and sea areas by 2030 through area-based conservation measures like protected areas and national parks. So Claire, 
based on your observations and your work, you've been describing that how protected areas alone are not enough, right? We have these farmlands, which are conversion of these forest areas into farmlands, which are again causing the loss of biodiversity. So in fact, protected area effectiveness is also greatly influenced by surrounding land management. So if we have protected areas surrounded by ill-managed or not well-managed farmlands, then, you know, the wild corridors and everything gets completely disrupted. And so our conservation measures are not going to be up to mark. So if creation of protected areas does not guarantee biodiversity conservation and species loss, then why do we follow 30 by 30? To elaborate this a little bit more, at present we know that only 15% of the world's surface is protected and around 60 to 70% of terrestrial area consists of farms, forest trees, ranches, which are driven by humans. So if we were to manage the 70% of land, can we still conserve a big portion of the biodiversity and thereby maybe stop proposals that lead to mass displacement of people? As a scientist working at the intersection of agriculture and biodiversity conservation, I think you're the best person to answer this thought. I don't know if I'm the best person, but I will offer an opinion. I don't want to diminish how difficult this is, but I will go back to something I said earlier that, you know, there are lands that are still fairly natural or semi-natural, and it's really important not to convert those to wholesale agriculture. That doesn't mean that there can't be some forms of, of use, for sure, in those lands, but I think converting them to agriculture is not a good idea. We really don't have much land left for the voiceless multitudes of biodiversity, the species that cannot persist in a highly modified environment. So that 30 by 30 is, I think it's a good step. And it's really about how we have to do it really carefully, really thoughtfully, so that we don't create equity issues and we don't displace people. At the same time, I think that we shouldn't just focus on that 30% that's going to be protected, we really need to focus as well on the lands that are managed, what I call working lands, which would include agriculture, forestry, rangelands, all of those kinds of natural resource production areas. We need to be making those more sustainable, still productive, profitable, and generating good livelihoods for people in an equitable fashion. That's a tall order. But I strongly believe that the way to do that is to mostly utilize biodiversity-based techniques, these kinds of diversification practices that I was mentioning so that we can make these landscapes much more sustainable and more hospitable. Thank you, Claire, for answering that question and bringing your thoughts to the table. Claire, your research has always been an inspiration to me and many others, and you always work on something exciting. So tell us what is the next big thing you're working on? What I'm excited about right now is we're making claims that more diversified working landscapes will help organisms to move through those landscapes. But there's very little information on that so far. We know a little bit about when you have patches of natural habitat in the landscape or corridors, which is essentially like structural linkages or stepping stones, that that is helpful. But we don't know much about, for example, if you do something like a more complicated cropping system, agroforestry, for example, or even just multiple different crops in a field, does that help at all? So what different kinds of techniques of diversification techniques actually help organisms to sort of move through the landscape? 
So that's one of the things that we're looking at in my lab. And I'm excited about that because it's just one of those unknowns that we're, we're hoping to find out and will help be a, another little piece in the puzzle. That's very fascinating, Claire. As I discussed in the beginning, Claire is also leading a new initiative at the University of British Columbia, the Interdisciplinary Biodiversity Solutions, iBIOS. Claire, do you want to speak a little bit about iBIOS over here to our listeners? I'm really excited about iBIOS. We've just hired a fantastic group of assistant professors that are going to be working with us in both the ecological and social dimensions of biodiversity conservation and how we can come up with new ways of doing this better. And we're really just getting going on our program, but we've got fantastic energy and and momentum from both the existing faculty members on campus who are part of this initiative and our new group. Thank you, Claire, for this wonderful talk. You shared such beautiful insights on biodiversity and conservation. I'm sure none of us are going to look back at farmlands in the same way anymore. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you want to hear more from Biodiversity Speaks, you can follow us at our socials, iBIOS program on Twitter and Instagram handles. This episode is hosted by me, Helena Jolly, edited by Annis Lee and assisted by Emma Jarek Simard. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until we meet again, Look out for bees and birds in the nearby farmlands. Thank you.